in Acts chapter 2, where we have been camped for a long time, today we look at another verse, different than verse 42. Verse 42, we've been plugging away at. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And the whole paragraph is a synopsis of life in the early church. But we go down to verse 47, where we read, Praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. There was a meeting of spiritual leaders and somebody rushed in the building and said, the building is on fire and we're all trapped. Now, what would your response be if somebody came in this meeting and said, the building is on fire and we're all trapped? Well, it might depend on your background. As in this particular case, the Methodists gathered in a corner and discussed the social and ecological significance of fire. The Baptists cried, where's the water? The Quakers quietly praised God for the blessings that fire brings. The Lutherans posted a fire notice on the door. The Catholics began a bingo game to cover the damages. We have a few recovering Catholics, I can tell. The Jews declared a fire feast. The Congregationalists shouted, every man for himself. The Fundamentalists proclaimed, it's the vengeance of God. The Episcopalians formed a procession and marched in protest against fire. The Christian scientists concluded there really was no such thing as fire. The Unitarians proclaimed the fire had no power over them. The Presbyterians appointed a chairperson to appoint a committee to look into the matter and submit a written report. And the Pentecostals said, it's the Holy Ghost. There's been a lot of spin-offs of stories like that. The long and short of it is, Different people worship different ways, even within the pale of Orthodox Christianity. Some people like it formal, some like it informal, some want it liturgical, others prefer it loose, others like uh, pipe organs, others like electric guitars. I would be of that latter sort. There's different styles. And I've worshipped in many places, from stone cathedrals in Europe to dirt floors in the Sudan and all over uh, Africa and the Philippines, And I've discovered that it's not where you worship, really, or how you worship, but that you worship in spirit and in truth. One of my most memorable worship experiences was in the year 2000 in the city of Amsterdam. And it was at a meeting called, very, very originally, Amsterdam 2000. It was a Billy Graham event, and what we did is assemble 10,000 evangelists from 209 different nations, most of which had to be sponsored by Westerners who could afford to fly these different barefoot evangelists, these very poor who were preaching the gospel, to this event to make sure they understood what the real gospel was and, and how to do it more effectively. Try to imagine, and it's difficult without being there, 10,000 voices raised from 209 different nations. Now, this says, boy, that sounds confusing because of the languages. But there are certain words you could pick out. Hallelujah. We all knew that one. Amen. We all could say that one. There were certain similarities that just sort of blended. And as I was in that huge auditorium with 
10,000 plus people. I thought of the verse in Revelation, which we'll read in a moment, where the four living creatures and the 24 elders bow down and the angelic anthem surrounds them and the number of them, says John, was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. I'm looking at verse 47 along with you at one particular word in it as a springboard to examine the praise of the early church. Because if verse 41 through 47 is the synopsis paragraph of the life of the church, then that last verse, verse 47, is a summary statement. And the summation of the early church was this. They were praising God. That's a vertical move. And having favor with all the people, that's the horizontal plane. In other words, if you were to sum up all of their life, you could do so on two levels. The vertical level, they were praising God. The horizontal level, they were having favor with all the people. And the Lord added daily those who were being saved. Today, we want to consider the praise of the early church and really the praise of the eternal church. Now think about it. Of all of the activities that are in these verses that we have been reading the last few weeks, there's one that won't quit after we die. There's some that will. Obviously, in heaven, you're not going to need the apostles' doctrine. We won't be gathering in meetings like this saying, open your Bible too, and let's have a Bible teaching on. There'll be no need for that. But there is an activity that will never cease for all of eternity, and that is praise. So we want to look at the praise of the early church and the eternal church. In fact, I'm going to draw your attention to, on the way to Revelation 4 and 5, to Acts chapter 3. Because worship, praise, is something that begins as soon as you're saved and continues after you die in glory. In Acts chapter 3... In verse 7, and let me just give you the background, that there's a guy at the gate, beautiful, who was lame from birth, and Peter and John see him, and Peter extends his hand to him and lifts him up, and the man is healed. He took him by the right hand and lifted him up. Immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. What is the first response after his salvation? Praise. Oh, hallelujah. This guy was stoked, jazzed, walking, leaping, praising God. You ought to know something, that God is on the lookout for worshipers. Did you know that? That's what he's looking for. Jesus said to the woman at the well of Samaria, there's coming a day, woman, and now is when the Father will be worshipped in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship Him. Well, doesn't it make sense, doesn't it stand to reason that if God is looking for authentic, true worshipers, that He ought to find them in His own church? You ought to find them in his own church. So let's fast forward with that and go to Revelation now, chapter 4. And, um, you know, I have a fault. It's when I go through texts of the Bible. I got a lot that comes out of that, and I have a lot to say about it, and that's a fault that I have. 
So I end up saying I'm going to do a study on this, and it ends up to be two or three or four studies. So I'm not going to cover all of four and five today. It's a long set of chapters. But more than that, there's so much in it about worship that I want to talk to you about three things that come out of it. As we look through this heavenly scene, this is now the eternal church. We're in glory. Three things pop out. And the first is the priority of praise. I take you to chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, the Greek word is metatauta, the things that are spoken of the church in the first uh, chapter 2 and 3. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here. I like that. And I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now here's the heavenly scene. John is taken up there in vision form, and I just got to throw this in. Notice that Peter is not there. I'm not saying Peter's not in heaven. I'm saying Peter's not at the gate of heaven with a clipboard. Like all those lame jokes, you know. Guy died and went to heaven. There was Peter. I've got to tell you something. Peter has nothing to do with you getting in or out of heaven. Jesus said, I am the door. And no one enters except through that door. In verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. Heaven is an English word that comes from an older English word, an Anglo-Saxon word that means, or that is, heave on. So if you wanted to really be accurate, where do you go when you die? You go to heave on. And heave on was an old Anglo-Saxon word that meant to be uplifted or lifted up on high. And the idea is that it described this word in the Bible whereby life is on a wholly other plane other than here in the commonplace and the mundane society in which we live. So the first thing that John sees is this throne and one sitting on the throne, and that's God. In verse 3, he's described... He who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. Now, a jasper's bright, clear, white, really, kind of a stone like a diamond. And uh, the sardius stone is a ruby red in hue. Isn't it interesting that there at the throne, the color of bright, iridescent white and red like blood, as if to say we are made clean and purified by the blood that will be noticed later on, the blood of the Lamb. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So the first thing John notices when, boom, he's raptured, you might say, caught up into heaven, the first thing he is drawn to is the one sitting on the throne. And i got to tell you that I think The greatest thing about heaven isn't what we'll do there or what is there, but who is there. You know, heaven's sort of like your home. What makes your house so great? What you have there? No, who you have there. That's what makes it so great. Whom is there? A lot of times I'll attend funerals, and if the guy was a golfer, you know, somebody will stand up and give this 
crazy eulogy like, I know right now he's up on that eternal golf course in heaven. Well, if he's in heaven, I don't think so. Oh, I know he loved to fish and he's out there in a boat somewhere in heaven looking at... No, he's not. Especially if God's there, who cares about the boat or the golf course? Now you could say, no, wait a minute, you're treading on thin ice here, preacher. But that's what he noticed was the throne of God and God himself. And and what's going on up there? Well, let's see. Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures. Get this, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had the face of a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures having six wings were full of eyes around and within. Now, come on. That, that's cool. you got to admit that. Um, let me tell you a secret. Promise not to tell anybody. Before I was saved, I did some drugs. They were hallucinogenic drugs. And I saw some wild, crazy things. Never anything this cool. And there's a point I want to make. You say, where are you going with that one? Anything your mind can try to conjure up or Hollywood can try to make as awesome with all of its effects can't come close to what it's really going to be like. I hath not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. But God has revealed them to us by his spirit. And here's the revelation. These four living creatures, and notice what they're doing around the clock. They do not rest day or night. In other words, you can't turn them off. You can't say, I've heard that song, can we try a new one? Day and night, this is what they say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever... The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So what's going on up there? A whole lot of praise is going on up there. Now listen carefully. You and I were created and redeemed to worship. The goal of all of redemptive history from the beginning to the end is worship. Did you know that? God put us on the earth to glorify him. Verse 11 says, we were made for your glory. We exist for your purpose. We're here because you wanted us here to give you glory. So we were created for that, but then... Man fell in the garden. You know the story. It's an age-old story. Every Christian has heard it, the Adam and Eve thing. And basically what man said is, I will not worship you. That's the origin of all sin. 
self-worship. I'm going to do my thing my way. Bug off. I won't worship you. So what did God do? He said, I got to come up with a plan. And the plan was the blood of the lamb being shed. Jesus coming to this earth. Why? To rescue us from that and to turn us into true worshipers. So that the only ones that will ever be in heaven are worshipers. They cease not day and night saying, and then the 24 elders are also worshiping him. Now, we have a problem. The problem is in our vocabulary. You see, we have trained ourselves as Christian churches to confine worship to an event. We call this the worship service. This is the Sunday worship service. And uh, what we do is we get together and we pray and we worship and then we read the Bible and we close with worship. We, we confine it to just an event, a worship service. But I think you would agree that it's possible to attend a worship service and still not worship, to be disengaged from it. Charles Spurgeon years ago said, I believe the very large majority of churchgoers are merely unthinking, slumbering worshipers of an unknown God. I read that and you know what I said? Ouch. Ooh, that hurts. And then I read it again and I thought, I think he's right. Which causes us to ask, what is true praise? What is true worship? Is it a goosebump you get? Is it a special feeling you conjure up? So that if you don't get it, you walk away going, I really didn't worship today because that goosebump didn't come. This is what worship means basically. It means to declare worth. Our English word worship, before it became known as worship, the original English word was worth-ship, to ascribe or declare worth. You're worth it, God. You're worthy, God. To declare worth is worth-ship, and before that, the word was worthspus. Say that ten times, worthspus. All means the same thing, to declare or acknowledge worth. So at its most basic, rudimentary level, we define worship as declaring worth or paying homage to a superior being. Okay, but we're believers. We know that. That's very basic. Let's get a little deeper there. Let me give you the what I think is the biblical definition slash description of worship. And I'm going to give it to you in four components, four parts. Number one, worship is a response to God. It's a response to God. The Bible tells us in First um, John chapter four, verse nine, we love him because he what first loved us so that our love, adoration, respect is a response to his love. So number one, worship is a response to God. Here's the second component. Worship is the proper response to God. It's the right thing to do. Romans chapter 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Or I would translate it, it's the smartest thing you could do. Some translations say it's your spiritual act of worship. So worship is a response to God. Worship is the proper response to God. Here's the third component of it. Worship is the proper response to God that comes from the heart. He's more than just, okay, I'll show up, here's my body, respond, 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 can I go now? 
It's the proper response to God from the heart. Jesus said to the woman at the well of Samaria, the father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Philippians chapter three, Paul writes, we are those who worship God in the spirit and have no confidence in the flesh. Here's the fourth component, and we'll put it all together. True worship, worship is the proper response to God from the heart whereby we place God above everything and everyone else. Anything other than that is not true worship. Worship is the proper response to God that comes from our hearts whereby we place God above everyone and everything else. That's the first and greatest commandment, isn't it? You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, everything. That then is true worship. What that means to us is that I place God above my hobbies. I must place God above my friendships. I have to place God above my television shows, above sporting events, above relationships. It means that I have to place God above my mom, my dad, my children. There's a lot of Christians that won't do that. Because Jesus even said uh, concerning worship and those who follow him, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. So that is true worship. It's not an act. It's a lifestyle. It's an attitude of absolute given over devotion to God. That's worship. That's the priority of it in heaven. Okay. We've looked at the priority. Here's the second thing. What is the premise of true praise? We know what the priority is. It was all the early church did, and they were wrapped up in it, and it's going to continue into heaven. What's the, what's the premise of it? What's the reason that we do it? Or you might say the purpose for it. And there's two reasons. Number one, we worship God for who God is, and we worship God for what he has done. We worship God for who he is. He is unique and different from every other being who's ever existed. In fact, if you look at verse 8, that's where they begin. These four living creatures say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Well, who's God? He's holy. He's almighty. And he's eternal, was, is, and is to come. Now, that description can only be of God. There's no other being who's ever existed that can fit that description or is described that way. Paul was never described that way. The Virgin Mary was never described that way. Elvis was never described that way. None of those things fit those people, only uniquely God. Let me take it a step further. Because God is only that and no one else comes close to him because that's who he is, he didn't like competition. Did you know that? God will have no rivals. I am the Lord thy God, and you will have no other gods before me. In fact, did you know the Bible calls God a jealous God? And that sort of disturbs some people, and they really go, I can't believe the Bible says God is a jealous God. I don't understand it. I do. I'm a husband. I do. I have a wife, and I have a love that would be jealous for her. If some other guy is trying to pick up on her or flirt with her, I will be jealous. You say, that's not good. Oh, it's very good. It's very good. It protects the love that we have. And any husband who's not jealous over his wife, I don't have respect for. 
God is a jealous God, and the Bible calls us the bride of Christ, which means our love and adoration must only be His because of who He is. So God alone is to be worshipped, and uh, if you try to worship any other person, a saint or an angel or anything else, that's idolatry, basically. I know that because John tried it. We'll read sometime in the future through the book of Revelation where John tries to worship the angel who gave him the book of Revelation. And the angel doesn't say, oh, well, isn't that sweet? He says, get up. Don't do that. I'm just a fellow servant like you are. He wouldn't receive it. So God doesn't want angels worshipped, Mary worshipped, saints worshipped, pastors worshipped, movements worshipped, theologies and ideologies worship only God alone. So we worship for who God is. Second, we worship God for what he has done. Verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. Here's why. For you created all things. You did it all. And by your will, they exist and were created. Then if you go over to chapter 5, and let me give you a brief recap. We'll be back in the next week. John sees God on the throne, and he's got a scroll in his hand, and it's sealed with seven seals, and the voice says, who's worthy to take that scroll and unloose the seals? And nobody around can do it or is worthy to do it. And John starts breaking down and crying like a little baby. And an angel says, John, relax. Hang I'm, Now I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Weep thou not. How's that? For behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to take the scroll and loose the seals. And the lamb takes it and does it. And uh, all of heaven responds by breaking out in worship and praise. The four living creatures, the 24 elders, the angels, etc. And verse 9, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. And here's why. You are worthy. Why? For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And then verse 12, they sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. I want to give this to you briefly, but hopefully succinctly. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation hearken back to an ancient Jewish practice called the redemption of the land. If you had a piece of land and you had to somehow or for some reason forfeit the land so that you lost it because you couldn't pay off your debts, it was seized from you. It was belonging now to somebody else. It was forever lost unless you either had the jubilee year or you had somebody in your family who had the money and was willing to be called the goel. That's a Hebrew word. Goel is kinsman redeemer. So your kinsman could come up and say, hey, I'll buy the land and give it back to you. That's what's going on here. The title deed to the earth is in the hand of God. And nobody around has the ability or the wherewithal to buy the earth that has been lost to the fall back to God. So John starts weeping convulsively. Well, if no one is worthy to take the scroll, we're forever doomed in sin. Ah, John, don't cry. Look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, who turns out to really be a lamb that was slain, takes the scroll, unlooses the seals, takes the title deed of the earth, gives it back to the Father. Now, there's a point to be made in worship. 
We were created by God to worship him. We said, out of here, God, I want to do my thing my way. So we said, no, I will not worship God. Then God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. He redeemed us. And now we say, I will gladly worship God. It's now voluntary. So we're redeemed. And we're redeemed and we worship because of what he has done, i.e. the cross. Now, the cross of Jesus Christ has always been and shall always be at the very center of worship of the true church. Shame on any church that wants to take the word blood out of its hymnology or the cross and try to hide it and make it so that we can all kind of hang out and you'll never be offended because we'll never talk about Jesus or the blood. Shame on them for that. Because at the very center of all of the church's worship is the cross. Redemption. You were slain by your blood. There was a, an old Russian woman who was in a cathedral one day in her home city. And she walked up front and she bent over to kiss the feet, the scarred feet of a crucifix of the statue of Jesus. So she bent over and she was kissing the feet of Jesus. And a Russian soldier was there in the church with his gun and he kind of butted her with a gun and said, Babushka, which is grandma. Babushka, are you willing to kiss the feet of Stalin like you kissed the feet of Jesus? And she looked at him and said, yes, I am, if he gets crucified for me. (laughs) She's kissing the feet of Jesus because he was slain for her. And that was the center of her worship. So there's the priority of praise. And here's the premise because of who he is and because of what he's done. Oh, by the way, did you know the most common word for worship in the New Testament is proskuneo, which literally means to kiss towards. It's an intimate upreach of, I love you. I respond in that intimate kissing towards. Now, I want to close in verse 8 and consider as we close the persons that are involved in worship. Now, look at them. We've already met the four living creatures. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down Before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The 24 elders, who are they? There's been a lot of talk about them. I can tell you pretty firmly, pretty confidently, that it's the church. And here's the reason why. The the scene here in heaven is very temple-esque. And in the temple, a couple thousand years ago in Jerusalem, there were 24 courses of priests and 24 men who represented each course. And those 24 courses, those 24 men, represented before God the entire nation of Israel. So those 24 courses of priests represented all of the nation of Israel. These are 24 elders, which is a church term. They represent the entire church. And here's why I think it's that. Because they're holding a a little vial full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They're representing the church, the saints. Not only that, but listen to the lyrics of the song they sing. Verse 9, you're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. You were slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's who it is. People out of every tribe, tongue, people, nation who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. What's that? That's the church. So the 24 elders are representative of the church worshiping God in heaven, prompted by these wild-looking 
creatures called the four living creatures. The Greek word zoa, which simply means a living thing. They look wild, but you know what their purpose is? Two things in the book of Revelation. They inspire worship and they judge the world. What a combo, huh? What's your job? Oh, I get people worshiping, then I judge the rest of the world. That's what they do throughout the book of Revelation. They are prompting and inspiring the worship of the 24 elders. Then they go out in the rest of the book and judge the world for not worshiping God. So who's praising God? 24 elders, four living creatures, the saints. And if you go on, verse 11, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of angels in Revelation 5:11, And look at verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. So who's praising Everyone is. There's not a few people going like this in the back. Looks well, cool. It's whatever. Everyone is. Four living creatures, 24 elders, angels upon angels upon angels. Every redeemed saint, everyone is worshiping God. Which leads me to this question and application. Who should be worshiping now? Everyone. If this is the church eternal, And we saw what happened in the early church as a springboard. The answer is everyone. By the way, in heaven, only worshipers will be there. That's what all the judgments is about. They refuse to worship God. They'll get judged eternally for it. Only worshipers of God are in heaven. All of that to say this. Worship is not just a few songs that we sing before a service. Worship is the entire time we gather. When you got up this morning and you put on your clothes, you were getting ready to worship. And you gathered here and somebody prayed, opened up in prayer. That was worship. And we sang songs of worship and we gave tithes and offerings to the Lord. That was part of our worship. And then we read through the scripture. This is a part of our worship. It's all a part of worship. Now, I want to say something genuinely from my heart, not meant to castigate or hurt anybody or... I just want to say this. I think it's biblical, and I think from a pastor, you ought to hear it. The songs that we sing, the musical portion of our worship, is not a time filler for latecomers. We don't do it because, well, you got 20, 30 minutes to make it. You know, you got a lot of leeway, so just let's leave at the time the worship starts, and we'll get there, and we'll get in time for the Bible study. It's meant to be done by all of God's people for all of the worship. If we were created and redeemed to do it, we ought to do it. Now, you might say, um, well, uh, now that you brought that up, Skip, let me just say that I, I don't really get all that much out of this worship. Oh, really? Did you hear that? I don't get all that much? Last time I checked, that's not an issue. Because it's not for you. It's not that you get anything out of worship. We don't select songs so that you go, wow, that was a great goosebump I got. It's all about him. It's an audience of one. Did he like it? 
And certainly God doesn't like it if we say, I hate that worship. That is just to this or to that. Listen, I have been in a variety of worship experiences all the way from a 30-minute to a four-hour worship service with every conceivable type of music, and I found I can worship. I can worship. Dr. D. James Kennedy said this, Most people think of the church as a drama with the minister as the chief actor. God is the prompter and the laity as the critic. What is actually the case is the congregation is the chief actor, the minister is the prompter, and God is the critic. So we don't come because we get stuff out of it. We come because he's worth it. That's worship. He's worth it. He is worthy to be praised. So I know you love God. If I were to ask you individually, say, I love God. And let me just say that. God isn't too crazy about secret admirers. You love him? He's God. He's worth every amount of energy that could possibly be put in to our praise and our response. I've traveled to uh, different parts of the world. I've been over to Dan Wooding's country, uh, the country of England, and uh, there's one church, though I've been in lots of different churchyards and seen lots of different gravestones, I make a habit out of spending afternoons reading them because it's fascinating what you find. But uh, over in um, Fairford, England, in the Fairford churchyard, I hear is a monument to a cat. True story. The townspeople and the church people said that the cat used to wander into the church during the worship service. And the townspeople will all agree that that cat spent more time in that church than any one of them did in their lifetime. Thus, they erected a statue to the worshiping cat. Which leads me to close with this question. You don't want to be outdone by a cat, do you? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, right now we are worshiping you in spirit and in truth. These simple words that are tied to emotions and thoughts and commitments that we're making, all of that goes before you into your ears, into your heart. And we recognize that we were created for you. We were redeemed then for you. And to the extent that we give you glory, we are fulfilling the reason for which we were created and redeemed. We know, Lord, that one day we're going to be in heaven. We talk about that. Today we understand that only worshipers are going to be there. Because a true Christian is a true worshiper. And a basic definition of a Christian is one who worships in spirit and truth. And so, Lord, all we're doing now is reminding ourselves that we've been bought with a price and sort of getting ready for heaven, tuning our voices up for the big day. I pray, Lord, that you would find among us true worshipers. And I pray, Lord, if anyone has come here this morning who has basically said, I want to do my own thing, I don't want God's control or rule in my life, I will not worship God that by your great love and redemption you'd rescue and turn us all into true worshipers that keep the priority of praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.